Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Lily Jamali. Nearly half a million Americans died from opioid abuse between 1999 and 2019, and one family's name has become synonymous with that crisis. The Sacklers, who own Purdue Pharma, built their wealth promoting the blockbuster addictive painkiller OxyContin. The company continues to face civil litigation for their role in helping ignite the epidemic of opioid addiction. Journalist Patrick Radden Keefe joins us to talk about his new book, Empire of Pain, which chronicles the history of the Sackler family and critically examines corporate ethics in the pharmaceutical industry. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Lily Jamali. In the 1990s, Purdue Pharma began aggressively marketing its drug OxyContin. As opioid addictions and deaths soared over the next two decades, Purdue Pharma owners the Sackler family consistently denied wrongdoing in multiple lawsuits. Now they're working to get immunity from future lawsuits in exchange for relinquishing control of Purdue and paying a $4 billion settlement. Here to discuss the Sackler family and their handling of the opioid crisis is journalist Patrick Radden Keefe. He's the author of a new book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Welcome to you, Patrick Radden Keefe. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you back on Forum. You came to report on the Sackler family sort of indirectly. You write in the book that you were reporting on the Mexican drug on Mexican drug cartels and that that's what actually sparked your interest in the Sacklers, who at that point were pretty distant in the public mind from the opioid crisis. Yeah, it was a strange point of entry for me. Um, I had not really followed the opioid crisis closely as an issue, though obviously I was aware of it um, and aware of how broadly it had, uh, you know, it had touched different parts of this country. But I'd always been very interested in the illegal drug trade. And so I'd done a lot of reporting about drug cartels in Mexico. And I noticed at a certain point that there was a, a sharp uptick in uh, the amount of heroin that they were sending across the border. And suddenly you had Mexican heroin really flooding American communities. And I was trying to figure out how this happened, why this happened, because the cartels tend to be uh, surprisingly sensitive to consumer demand in mm-hmm. terms of when they, you know, when they make decisions about what they're going to export. Um, and that led me to the opioid crisis, to the reality that there was a huge community of people in this country who had become addicted to opioids, which is to say drugs that that, uh, derive from the opium poppy, Mm -hmm. and were buying heroin, but who had started out not buying drugs on the street, but actually 
with prescription pills. So the, the, the on-ramp for them had been drugs like OxyContin. Right, legal regulated drugs. How did you land on Arthur Sackler as your main point of entry? And he's the oldest of the three original brothers in the Sackler family. He wasn't necessarily an obvious choice. Um, His family, his branch of the family has long distanced themselves from OxyContin, saying that he died years before it ever hit the market. But how did you come to realize that he was the key to the story that you wanted to tell here? Well, this this is an important thing to say up front is that my book uh, is not a full spectrum history of the opioid crisis uh, per se. I was much more interested in telling a, a kind of multi-generational saga about this family, three generations of this family. Um, and so one of the big decisions I made was to focus really the first third of the book on Arthur Sackler, mm-hmm. who in my mind is kind of the patriarch for this story. And you and, and he dies before OxyContin was ever introduced. But you sort of need to understand his life in order to understand the world in which OxyContin did what it did. So you originally had three Sackler brothers. They were born to immigrant parents in Brooklyn uh, early in the 20th century. They grew up during the Great Depression. They were Jewish. They experienced great anti-Semitism. Uh, they, they watched their family lose everything during the Depression, and they all went on to become doctors, but also businessmen. And Arthur was the oldest of the brothers, this kind of amazing, charismatic polymath who in the 1940s and 50s went into pharmaceutical advertising. And so his real skill was figuring out how to sell drugs, not to consumers necessarily, but to doctors. And he becomes this kind of like the Don Draper of medical advertising in the 1950s. There are a lot, I interviewed a lot of these old guys in their 90s who were in the business back then. And they all said, Arthur Sackler invented the wheel. Mm. He, He really created pharmaceutical marketing as we know it today. Yeah, he really uh, had so much to do with the marketing machine uh, that that ultimately gives way to the opioid crisis, as you tell it. How did he develop the template that Purdue would then go on to use to sell OxyContin even after he was gone? So Arthur Sackler had this notion of of physicians, which I think you know was hardly exclusive to him. I think it's an idea a lot of us grow up with mm-hmm. that 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 physicians are almost like priests. They're these kind of godlike figures in our society who, you know, you go to them and and you don't have medical training. So as a patient, you sort of put yourself in their hands. And I think baked into that is an assumption of their competence, um, but also of their incorruptibility. And and Arthur Sackler had this notion that doctors are incorruptible, that all they care about is the appropriate medical care uh, for the patient. But there's this paradox, which is that he also owned and controlled a, a very successful advertising company that was in the business of getting doctors to prescribe certain drugs. And so he did that using a, a wide variety of, of tactics. I mean, one thing he did was just sort of import into the world of pharmaceutical advertising, which had been pretty sleepy up to then, a lot of the techniques that you would have seen in the 1950s used to advertise cigarettes or cars or bathing suits. Um, so, you know, kind of splashy imagery and graphics and clever spreads that he would then put in in medical journals and and magazines aimed at doctors and he actually started his own newspaper called the Medical Tribune which was distributed free paid for by advertising often advertising that he was also getting paid for mm. uh, through his ad agency and what they would do is kind of overplay the therapeutic benefits of a drug so you have some new wonder drug and they would make all kinds of crazy claims for the things this drug could do and how many people should use it 
and then really downplay the potential risks. And Arthur Sackler's first really great fortune was made when he designed the marketing plan for Valium, for this tranquilizer that became at the time the biggest blockbuster in the history of the pharmaceutical business. And oh, by the way, happened also to be quite addictive. That's right. We are talking about the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma, and the opioid crisis with Patrick Radden Keefe. He is a journalist and the author of Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. What are your questions about the Sackler family, opioids, or Purdue Pharma? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and on Facebook. We are at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at KQED. QED.org. Patrick, what kind of company was Purdue Pharma when the Sacklers first bought it? So they bought the company in 1952. And as I said, Arthur was the, the kind of dominant figure in the family at that time. He had these two brothers who he referred to even when they were grown men as his kid brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they were they were also medical doctors. They had ambitions of their own. And so he kind of set them up in business with this company. He, he bought Purdue Frederick. And they would each control a third of the company, but really it was the brothers Mortimer and Raymond who would run it. Yeah, it's almost like a pet project that he set up for them, as you describe it. Yeah, and it was very typical of Arthur also that he he was kind of a walking conflict of interest. He loved having his hands in lots of different areas, but also not having people know it. And so for him, it was very convenient to have, um, you know, in this case, a business that he owned a third of. But he had no real day-to-day involvement in. And so, for instance, when people were reading his Medical Tribune newspaper and there's all these ads for Purdue Frederick products, uh, people might not realize that, um, that, they're, you know, that, that he's got a stake mm-hmm. in a lot of these products that are being advertised there. So it was originally kind of a, a pretty unglamorous um, uh, little drug company that specialized in all kinds of products that were mostly over over the counter products. So the brothers come in and they they had a, a big success with um, with an antiseptic solution. Uh, one of their really big products for decades um, was a laxative, mm-hmm. Seneca. They had an earwax remover. I, I mean, it's almost comical. I, I you know there there were former sales reps who used to be sales reps for the old version of Purdue, and they said you know we, we were not a hit at dinner parties with the, pro- the products <laughs> that we were that we were yeah. promoting. Um, and some of those products actually um, are are used when people are dealing with uh, with opioid issues, with trying to wean themselves off. Those those sort of run of the mill products are actually also being pushed pushed out there in in terms of uh, providing some relief, right? Well, this is one of the things that was amazing to me about this story is the kind of sheer um, entrepreneurial swagger of of. And this is not just true of Purdue, but you see it in big pharma in general. So they. They have, eventually, they have these opioids that they sell, and one side effect, if you're taking opioids, can be constipation. And so their sales reps would say, you know, constipated because of, our, because of OxyContin? Well, good news. We've got, we can also offer you Seneca. Mm. Um, yeah, so they would, they would try and uh, get you coming and going. Let's talk about the drug a little bit. Before there was OxyContin, there was another drug that Purdue Pharma developed called MS-Contin. And for both, the innovation wasn't actually the drug itself. Why was MS-Contin considered so groundbreaking? 
So MS Content was developed actually in the UK uh, and rolled out in the United States in the in the UK and the US in, in the 1980s. And it's really just morphine. But up to that point, pain had been, um, I mean, pain still is a very, very difficult question in medical practice in terms of how you deal with pain. And one of the issues was that uh, there had been a reluctance to give people morphine um, unless they were in, in really serious, uh, you know, they had a really serious condition like cancer pain. And with cancer pain, the way morphine was often administered was you would go into the hospital and you would get it on a drip um, or you'd have a regimen of shots. And what happened with MS Contin was they, the company developed this um, coating that they called the Contin system. And basically it was a time release coating, which meant that you could take a, a, a morphine pill that was a big dose of morphine and it would slowly enter your bloodstream through this coating uh, over the course of hours and hours. So it was almost like being on a drip. But what it meant is you could go home. You didn't have to be at the hospital. And also, I think it kind of destigmatized morphine for people who might be reluctant to get shots, for instance, or to be on a drip. So this was quite a revolutionary drug, even though the, the active ingredient, morphine, was very a, a very old drug. And it was a big success for Purdue. And it really kind of put them... Um, at the vanguard of uh, the, the uh, pain treatment pharmaceuticals. And it sort of uh, paved the way for OxyContin, which would be the next drug that they would introduce and very different in some ways, but a, but a, big, um, a big advance on MS-Contin. Well, we're talking with uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, author of the new book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. What are your questions about the Sackler family, opioids, and Purdue Pharma? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and on Facebook. We are at KQED Forum, or email your questions to us at forum at kqed.org. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Lily Jamali. We're talking with Patrick Radden Keefe, author of Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Patrick, as OxyContin becomes the company's blockbuster drug in the 90s, what was the relationship between Purdue Pharma and the doctors who they targeted as they marketed the drug? So you have this transition from MS Contin to OxyContin, which is that MS Contin had been a very successful drug for the company, but it chiefly was a drug for cancer pain. And eventually the patent on MS Contin is running out and the Sacklers and the senior employees at their company, Purdue, start to wonder, well, how, you know, what do we, what do we have next? What's next in the pipeline? And they decide to use that content coding with a different opioid, with oxycodone. And they developed this drug, OxyContin. And there are a couple of things that 
about OxyContin that mark a big departure. The first is that they no longer are content just to target people suffering from cancer pain. Mm. Uh, that's a limited market. And they talk about this. I've got, got these emails where they talk about how what we really want to do is broaden this out because there's tens of millions of Americans who suffer not just from really severe pain, but even just moderate pain. Mm -hmm. And we want to target them. So this will be a drug really for everyone. Um, and then they have to figure out a way to persuade doctors that that makes sense, that it makes sense to prescribe. You know, what they said is their tag phrase for OxyContin was it's the drug to start with and the one to stay with. So it's not this kind of nuclear solution that you graduate to and other remedies have failed. It's the first course of treatment, even with moderate pain. The problem that they had was that the American medical establishment tended to be a little squeamish about prescribing strong opioids, except for really, really severe pain, because of fears that these drugs were addictive. And so Purdue launches this campaign to persuade doctors that they're wrong, that there's been a lot of hysteria about these drugs, but actually they're not addictive. And that if you, if you prescribe them to people who are in pain and they take them as the doctor ordered, they won't get addicted. I've interviewed a bunch of these former sales reps and during this period of time in the 1990s, they would go to doctors and say, less than 1% of the time, less than 1% of the time, you get addicted less than 1% of the time. Mm. Um, and so there's this kind of huge blitz to persuade doctors that that's the case, that they should be prescribing these drugs much more widely and that they don't need to worry about addiction. And it turns out to be incredibly successful. They, they, do, they succeed in sort of changing the mind of the medical establishment. Mm -hmm. Even though that, is, that statistic is absolutely not true, the drug was much more addictive as it turned out. And as we all know now, we're going to take our first caller now. Chris is joining us now from San Francisco. Chris, welcome to Forum. Hi, thank you so much for addressing this critical issue. I'm a psychologist. I work in substance use disorder treatment. I actually did a postdoc in uh, a harm reduction clinic that administered methadone. I am wondering if Purdue Pharma produces either buprenorphine and or methadone, which are used to treat opioid addiction. It's, it's so funny you should say that. Thank you for the call. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sort of goes back to the, um, to the idea about, um, about uh, <laughs> the, you know, using Seneca um, for the side effect of OxyContin. So there has been discussion. I mean, there's this kind of amazing thing that happens with Purdue Pharma where you get a, um, a crisis that develops actually pretty quickly after the launch of OxyContin in 1996 and we can talk about this in, in more detail if you'd like, but there's a, a sort of a period of denial where the company knows that there's a problem, but they're not admitting it publicly. Uh, and then eventually you get an acknowledgement that, okay, there's a, there, there is a real problem. People are abusing this drug. They're becoming addicted to it. Um, and during the, all of this time, Purdue keeps, what they really want to do is introduce more opioids. Um, but, but eventually you do get this point where they start looking at business plans for, they, they kind of have to acknowledge there's a crisis of addiction here and it's actually associated with the product that we already sell. Mm -hmm. And so then they start talking about, well, what are the, you know, what about the, the opioid uh, addiction market? What, what, what opportunities are there in there for us? And they, there's a, a, a right now, a lot of negotiation happening about uh, the bankruptcy, um, 
And one element of the proposal there is that the company would um, would produce some of these kinds of drugs that would uh, sort of, uh, in effect, address the crisis um, while also continuing to sell OxyContin mm-hmm. um, and that that would be some of the way in which in which Purdue and the Sacklers would would, in effect, make amends. But this was something that was discussed, if I recall from your book, Patrick, this idea of, um, let's say, methadone, for example, of whether that was a market that they might get into. But that would have involved admitting uh, culpability for the crisis itself, right? Well, I think they would probably, it's a tricky needle to thread (laughs) for the family. They're very good at threading uh, tricky needles. Um, and so uh, not necessarily, but I do think it, you know, it could only cause discomfort for them. I've seen these internal slideshows where they talk about these and they say things like, uh, you know, opioids and addiction are naturally linked. And it is, it's kind of bracing to see a PowerPoint presentation, um, that goes to the board that says that kind of thing when you know that, um, that publicly that's a position that, you know, even today, uh, the Sacklers might might contest. Right. And then the, the line has always been that the problem isn't the drug, it's the addicts that are abusing the drug. And that has, uh, at this point, very much been debunked. We're going to go to our next caller. Um, go ahead. And welcome to Forum. Jeff, are you there? Oh, okay. Hi, Jeff. Right. Welcome to Forum. That. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, you know, where is the FDA in all this? I mean, the FDA is supposed to be regulating these drugs quite heavily. I can't pick up opioids from my Kaiser doctor unless I go into the office and and get them. They won't mail them to me. So how is it that these massive amount of drugs end up in counties that don't have a population to even support the use? That's a great question. And you document this at length in your book, Patrick, this chummy relationship between the FDA and Purdue Pharma. Has there been any kind of reckoning about the FDA's failures to to regulate the company? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things to unpack there. The first thing I would say to, to Jeff's question about, you know, what it's like now to get opioids is that is that the situation has changed really dramatically um, in, uh, in recent years, but in the 1990s, it's a, it's a very different situation. There's a story I tell in the book that I think is, is probably illustrative of, um, the FDA and the amount of confidence we, we can have in their judgment when it came to OxyContin and other opioids. Uh, the, in order to get approval for the drug, they needed to file a new, a new drug application. And there was an official at the FDA, a guy named Curtis Wright, who was the main official who w- had to sign off, first of all, on just the safety and efficacy of the drug and allowing it to be sold to American consumers, but then also sign off on the marketing claims, some of these quite exaggerated marketing claims that were being made for the drug. And Curtis, it breezes through the application process uh, in, in really record time. And Curtis Wright signs off on the drug. Purdue starts selling OxyContin, becomes a huge success. And Curtis Wright thinks, I think I'm, I'm ready to leave government. And about a year later, he ends up going to work at Purdue Pharma for three times his government salary. Um, David Kessler, who was the head of the FDA during this period, has said that he believes that the destigmatization of opioids that happened around the launch of OxyContin during this period was one of the great mistakes of modern medicine. 
But to the question of whether the FDA has faced a reckoning, I, I would say no. I mean, I, I sued the FDA under the Freedom of Information Act and actually got a judge in New York to, to force the agency to turn over thousands of pages of internal documents to me. And I asked for all of Curtis Wright's emails, mm. Curtis Wright, that official who took the job. And they came back to me and said, we're sorry, we don't have anything for you. Uh, they've, they've all either been lost or destroyed. <laughs> right. Sure. <laughs> okay, let's go to our next caller. Uh, Bill in San Francisco, welcome to Forum. Yeah, hi. Um, I am an interesting case because I'm sitting in San Francisco General Hospital right now. I had a pretty bad fall last week, mm. broke a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I've been on uh, opiates off and on over the last week, and I'm going to go home in the next couple of days. So the question is really not about the past and about the terrible behavior of the past, but kind of about the present, because my doctors, the trauma team here, are absolutely the best, the best of the best, right? They're telling me that I don't have any danger of any kind of dependence or addiction uh, if I take a bunch of opiates for pain for the next couple of weeks. And it's really a question of what is current practice as a result of what we've learned from, you know, the past several years? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, Bill, first, first of all, let me say, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that uh, about your, um, yeah. about your, your accident. Um, the, the answer is that it's all over the map. I mean, I, I think of this story in some ways as a, as kind of a Pandora's box story where um, once a lot of these problems get out there, they become exquisitely difficult uh, to deal with. And so the first thing I should say is I'm not a prohibitionist by any means. I think that opioids uh, have a, have a very important therapeutic use for some patients. Um, you know, my critique of the Sackler family in Purdue is not that they should never have uh, introduced OxyContin, nor even that it should be taken off the market today. I think the tricky thing is you had a long period of time in which pain probably was undertreated, in which physicians were really reluctant to prescribe these drugs um, out of fears of, of uh, concerns over addiction. And then you got a, a period in which they were sort of prescribing them willy-nilly, and the problem is that the, the, to the degree that physicians know about these drugs, there's a lot of education usually coming from the pharma companies about getting people on the drugs, but not a lot of education about how to get them off. And so, you know, I, I think this is the concern is that you have people who who start, but then they may struggle with the drugs and find it difficult to taper or to go off. They may find they're going in withdrawal. And when they go back to the, you know, whoever it is, the, the surgeon or the trauma doctors who prescribe them in the first place, these people are not addiction specialists. They're not necessarily trained. They don't necessarily have the, the time or the space to kind of work through the patient on, you know, how do I deal with the fact that I am wanting to take these drugs, you know, these pills more often than I, than I should be or whatever the issue is. So it, it's really, really difficult. Bill, thank you so much for the question. And we are wishing you well. Please, please be on the mend. Uh, we're, we're thinking of you. We're going to go to our next caller in San Diego. Fred is on the line. Welcome to Forum. Thank you. Thank you for taking my question. Um, so my question is, generally medications, my understanding is they're approved by the FDA because they provide more benefits versus the risks. And it's generally expected that drug companies will promote the benefits of their drugs broadly. It seems that Purdue is the line because they, in many ways, were prying on 
supplement to try to push the drug forward. I'm curious, what is the most damning evidence that has surfaced thus far that actually, in a way, point to criminal activity and, you know, um, that they actually knew that they were doing things that would actually harm patients as opposed to just trying to commercialize something that arguably had several benefits, as you mentioned, you know, earlier in the call? Yeah, I mean, I should say the... um in terms of uh, criminal conduct, Purdue Pharma ended up pleading guilty to to crimes, to felonies in 2007. Uh, and at the time saying they paid a $600 million fine, no executives went to jail. Uh, and they said, oh, we'll, you know, we'll be much better in the future. And then they pled guilty to a new set of federal crimes uh, just this last fall in November. Um, and that was the, that guilty plea covered many, many years of criminal misconduct. So it's, you know, it, don't take it from me. You, you can look at the guilty pleas of the company in terms of um, the aggressive and misleading uh, uh, misbranding and kind of fraudulent promotion of, of the drug. For me, looking back over tens of thousands of pages of, of court documents and internal documents and interviewing hundreds of people for the book, um, I mean, I could give you so many examples, but just to take one that I found particularly shocking, I described earlier that transition where they're going from MS Contin, the morphine drug for cancer patients, to OxyContin, uh, which they're hoping to promote for a much, much wider use. And there are these incredible internal emails where they talk about how they had done focus groups with doctors to find out, you know, how would they respond to OxyContin. And what they discovered is that doctors thought that oxycodone, the active ingredient in OxyContin, was weaker than morphine. Mm. Now, that's not true. It's actually a lot stronger. But the doctors seemed to be, they, they, they thought it was because, you know, they, they, were, they had really experienced it primarily with Percodan and Percocet, which are two medications that have oxycodone in them, but in much smaller doses. And so they thought of it as kind of a weaker treatment than morphine. And there are these amazing emails in which very senior executives at the company, and in fact, Richard Sackler, one of the Sacklers, is, is on some of these email chains. They talk about how, well, doctors have this misimpression about the drug that we're selling. We need to be really careful not to correct them, hmm. not to let them figure out that they're wrong about what we're selling, because if they do figure it out, that might hurt us in terms of positioning this drug for the biggest possible market. And, and that, to me, just seems, it's just so galling to see it there in black and white, right? That they're selling a product that they would end up making billions and billions and billions of dollars selling. And they say, Doctors don't understand what we're selling them. Let's make sure that we don't correct them. It's a really interesting segue into our next call in Danville. Prem is a surgeon. He joins us now. Welcome to Forum. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I actually just had a comment. I mean, uh, in, I'm a facial plastic surgeon, and in our field, because of the crisis, we've sort of taken it upon ourselves to do our own independent research as to the safety and efficacy of these medications and whether they're even needed for our patients postoperatively because we were sort of reflectively giving these pain medications because we thought everybody used them. Um, but after many of our procedures, we realized patients weren't using them. And so a lot, there's been a lot of peer-reviewed research in the last couple of years since the crisis began that looked at um, whether our patients even needed it. And most of the research shows that they don't. So to answer one of the other callers' questions is, uh, we don't actually give a lot of these medications anymore, thankfully, because of that research, because we, you know, we just didn't think we could trust the companies to give us the right information. 
Prem, thank you so much for that call and for that feedback. Um, I do want to switch gears with you briefly, Patrick, before we go to our next break. One of the things you spend a lot of time in your book talking about is how the Sackler family really likes putting their names on buildings, on museums and on galleries. Their name is on institutes all over the world. Why was that such an obsession across the board for this family? So, you know, this is something I really wondered about, because when I first encountered this story, the, the way in which I knew the Sackler family was that if you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, in New York City, there's a Sackler wing there. Um, you know, there's a Sackler wing at the Louvre and and uh, and these various institutes and, and museums all over the world. And I, I discovered when I was doing my research this kind of amazing anecdote, which is a story that was told and retold inside the family, which is that Isaac Sackler, the father, the immigrant father of those three brothers, lost everything during the Great Depression. And there's this amazing moment where he gathers his sons to him and he says, you know, I don't have much to give you here. Um, I, I've lost everything. You're going to have to pay for your own educations. The only thing I have to offer you is a good name, the good family name. And I do think that for me, that was kind of a, uh, a rosebud moment in this story. It unlocked what was going on because you, you see really dating back to the 1950s, the family giving a lot of money philanthropically, but always insisting that their name goes above the door, their name goes on the building. And you see that uh, over decades and decades, what I think was a very careful exercise in family branding. What are your questions about the Sackler family, opioids, or Purdue Pharma? Give us a call now at 1-866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and on Facebook. We are talking about the Sackler family with Patrick Radden Keefe, author of the new book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. In a moment, we're going to be joined by Melissa Jacoby, professor of law at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill talking about the latest details on the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy. Stay with us for that. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Lily Jamali. We're talking about the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma, and the opioid crisis with Patrick Radden Keefe, journalist and author of Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. And Patrick, a central figure in your book is the artist Nan Golden, whose work is probably familiar to some of our listeners. For those who aren't, she is a highly respected photographer who documented the AIDS crisis in the 80s and ends up struggling and also documenting her own addiction to opioids. How was she as an artist uh, uniquely positioned to take on the Sacklers? So there's this interesting thing when you look at uh, that, that family branding campaign that, that I mentioned, that, that you start to get a lot of questions about Purdue Pharma and OxyContin dating a long way back. I mean, the New York Times was reporting on this in 2001. There was a lot of scrutiny. As I mentioned, there was a guilty plea, a federal guilty plea in 2007 And it's a privately held company that's owned by this family, the Sacklers, but somehow this didn't seem to catch up with them for a long, long time. They continued to give money. 
uh, to to go to big you know charity events, to be kind of feted in high society in New York and London, without any sense that there was a taint associated with this company and this product that had generated so much of their fortune. That doesn't really begin to change until Nan Golden launches a campaign. I mean, a few things happen. The, the, the state of Massachusetts sues some of the Sackler family members, not just the company, but some members of the family. And Nan Golden launches this campaign to shame museums into taking down the Sackler name. And she does have this, as you said, this kind of unique set of attributes where she's a revered artist whose work is actually in the permanent collections of a lot of those very museums. Mm-hmm. She's a recovering Oxycontin addict who developed a real problem with the drug and lost a few years of her life uh, to it, you know, just, just being completely consumed um, by uh, an addiction to Oxycontin. And she has this background as an activist, and she starts launching these... Um, these kind of amazing protests at the Guggenheim, at the Met. And um, in my view, part of what happens is that she's, she stages them like a photographer. She has an amazing eye. Mm. And what that does is it means that, you know, the next day there are photographs everywhere because she doesn't just, you know, show up outside the Guggenheim with a bullhorn. She has her, her group of protesters go in and kind of sneak in on the busiest night and they go up that famous circular staircase and then they, uh, they all drop um, fake prescriptions, 6,000 of them, mm-hmm. down into the atrium of the Guggenheim and a photographer captures a picture of this huge cloud of prescriptions. And all of that together, I think, ended up putting the, the art world really on notice that it was going to become a lot more difficult for them politically to accept Sackler money. Yeah, the visual descriptions, by the way, of these actions that she organized are striking in your book. We're talking about the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma, and the opioid crisis with Patrick Radden Keith. And we are also now joined by Melissa Jacoby. She's a professor of law at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome to you, Professor. Glad to be with you. It's great to have you here. I wanted to have um, a little bit of time to talk about the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, uh, which is ongoing. I mean, this is every day there are new developments in this um, in this case. Can you talk about first what kind of settlement are the Sacklers working towards? Well, I think it's important to see that first the Sacklers themselves are not in bankruptcy. They may be looking for some of the protection that comes with a bankruptcy, but are trying to do that through the case of their company, Purdue Pharma. Uh, And so the end game for the Sacklers seems to be finality, a protection against a wide range of types of claims uh, for their alleged role in the opioid crisis. On the Purdue Pharma side, The goal, as expressed in their papers, is to transform this company uh, into something a little bit different. Uh, It would no longer be owned by the Sacklers, but it would also, and it would continue to sell OxyContin, but it would also be focused on abatement efforts, and much of the money would go to abatement efforts, as well as Uh, overdose medications, as well as uh, trying to develop other lines of medications. And really, all of this sounds like, I'm sorry. No, please go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was going to say, if all of this sounds a little bit odd for a bankruptcy case, I might agree with you. Uh, this is not uh, the way that bankruptcy was quite designed to work. But some yeah. people think it can be used rather flexibly. Well, I want to underscore the point that you just made, this idea that what uh, the proposal that's currently on the table is to create a new version of Purdue Pharma that sells opioids but uses the profits to pay past victims. That must strike some listeners as, as incredibly unusual and disturbing, potentially. What is your assessment of that proposal? The proposal and the case in general are rightly controversial for a lot of reasons. I mean, we have to take the baseline. Bankruptcy in America is mostly used by families of very modest means who cannot pay their bills. They've been laid off. They have medical problems. And to get that kind of relief, there's a package deal. They have to do a lot of things. They have to provide a lot of information. So the biggest concern about uh, the this deal in Purdue Pharma is, of course, that the Sackler family is getting bankruptcy benefits without all of the burdens. Yeah. Relatedly, though, this case is extraordinary, and it will not be the last if it works, uh, in trying to cut off the rights of governments to perform their health and welfare functions uh, against especially parties who are not themselves bankruptcy filers. So there are a lot of legal hurdles to this being an appropriate use of the bankruptcy system, but and it remains to be seen uh, whether it can pass muster, but it seems to have, uh, the, the court has expressed some support for moving this forward. And one of the big sticking points uh, is the idea that um, internal documents, uh, the Sackler family wants many of those documents to be permanently sealed from public view. Patrick, as a journalist, how does that strike you? And why is it so important to get those documents out into to public view? Well, there's been litigation against Purdue Pharma uh, for for a long time, um, for, for two decades more. And it's very often been the case historically, that the company has been willing to pay to settle cases, always with two conditions. One is that there's no admission of wrongdoing. And the other is that the all any documentation that comes out be sealed. And I, I think this has in some ways been a, a really brilliant strategy, because it, it did insulate the Sacklers, and to a lesser extent, the company, from scrutiny for a very long time, um, but it to me to me is pretty unsatisfying as an outcome. I should say there are proposals for some kind of a repository of documents um, that would be associated with the settlement that the Sacklers are are putting forward. Uh, the, the dimensions of that repository, you know, what would be in and what would be out. I think uh, that's a little bit of a moving target. And certainly if uh, past is prologue, I, I wouldn't have a lot of confidence in, uh, in the family's good faith in terms of disclosure. Um, but, but I think that a lot of people look at this situation and a, a bankruptcy can seem forbiddingly complicated, but we shouldn't lose sight of the forest for the trees. This is a company that pled guilty twice to federal criminal charges. In between, we now know, the family pulled $10 billion out of the company. So there's this kind of 
crazy notion that, that the, the company at a certain point, the coffers are, are running low. It's not able to handle the nearly 3,000 lawsuits against it. It doesn't have the resources for that. So the company declares bankruptcy. But that's only after the family has, in effect, looted its own company. Um, and so I, I quite agree with Melissa that, you know, I, I know much less about, about bankruptcy than she does. But just in terms of the the for, for the, the the man on the street here, it does seem weird, right, that you have a company in bankruptcy and then sitting on the sidelines, this family that isn't declaring bankruptcy and has, has you know, fairly recently taken 10 plus billion dollars out of the company. Yeah. And we are getting so com- so many comments um, about the human toll of the opioid crisis. Mac writes that he graduated high school in 2009, and like so many of his peers, he says he first experienced opiates in, in the form of OxyContin when he was just 16 years old. And um, we are also hearing from Brenda, who, whose son, who was 19 in 2018, when he died from an accidental overdose. He was trying to get off the opioids that he became addicted to after being prescribed them after his four impacted wisdom teeth were extracted when he was 16. After that, he wanted the drug all the time. I don't think a 16-year-old should have been prescribed opioids. Thank you for these comments. And we are so sorry for your loss, Brenda. We're going to go to our next caller. Paul in San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Forum. Hello. Hi, Paul. You're on the line. Go ahead. Hello. Hi, Paul. Welcome to Forum. Can you hear me? Uh, Yes, I can. Okay, go ahead Um, with your question. uh, I have more of a comment. Uh, I'm a physician, uh, and especially the... uh, use much in the way of, uh, of uh, pain medications, but uh, at least more than mild. But I recall about 20 years ago, there was a physician in California who was sued because he was not controlling a patient's pain with enough medication. And he won this case. And shortly after that, there was uh, the California Medical Board required physicians to have two hours of pain medication in order to renew their license. And hospitals, including the one that I worked at, had signs by the elevators that showed uh, there were nice printed up signs with pictures and such and said, have pain, let your doctor know. In other words, pain became something that shouldn't be there is the way it was being uh, treated. And I wonder how much that sort of attitude contributed uh, to the current uh, crisis. You certainly don't see those signs around anymore and Mm -hmm. haven't for many years. But I do remember them distinctly being around about 15, 20 years ago. I I don't recall exactly. And I remember having to take a course in pain medication, controlling pain, in order to renew my license. Wow. Well, Paul, thank you so much for the call. Um, this is an important issue, the idea of, you know, how how do you manage pain? You know, this is something that there is a whole community uh, that is asking this question right now. Wendy writes, my son suffers terrible nerve pain and degenerative 
discs in his spine. Because of other people's opioid abuse, she writes, my son's pain meds have been steadily reduced to where he is in constant pain, even under medication. So those with chronic pain who obey laws and don't abuse opioids suffer because of other people's abuse. What are your thoughts on that, Patrick? Because this, there is a balance to be struck between controlling and regulating a drug like OxyContin, but also treating chronic pain, which many people do suffer from. Yeah, I mean, this is a devilishly difficult problem. And as an illustration of that, I, you know, I get emails every day um, from from both chronic pain patients and from people who've lost loved ones to opioids. Um, and so you, you do have these uh, f- f- fairly strong um, emotional cases on both sides of that divide. I do think there's something revealing there, though, about the idea that, you know, obviously, if somebody is suffering from terrible pain, um, it, it, it's, it's terrible to think that we've, we've reached a point where you might get an overcorrection, which would mean that pain is undertreated because of the opioid crisis. Where I would push back on that last comment is the idea that there's two kinds of people. There's responsible people like your son who obeys the law. And then there's the, the irresponsible people who break the law by abusing these drugs. Uh, th- that's a, a, a talking point that originally was put out there uh, by Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers and other companies. It's been very effective and pernicious. And the suggestion is that the only people who get addicted to these drugs are people who effectively choose to do so, people of low moral character who are breaking the law and abusing the drugs. What that doesn't confront is the very difficult reality, which is that there are lots and lots and lots, hundreds of thousands of people over the years who have been prescribed OxyContin specifically, Purdue opioids specifically, uh, hundreds of thousands of people have been prescribed them by a doctor in a doctor's care, have gotten a prescription, have followed the instructions, and then become addicted or uh, developed a, a, an opioid use disorder. And so I think it's really tricky. I'm, I'm very, very sympathetic to, uh, to the, the struggle of pain patients who I think have been kind of marooned by these, these currents in terms of how we deal with these meds. But at the same time, I, I would really resist a suggestion that there's there's legitimate pain patients and then there's drug abusers, because I think the truth is, is far more complicated. Mm. Professor Jacoby, you know, Purdue Pharma is not the only company, of course, that makes and marketed opioids. There are others and there are others that are also in bankruptcy right now. Can you talk a little bit about the universe of of this um, of these manufacturers in the pharmaceutical industry? So there seems to be several different arenas in which these issues are played out. Uh, in, in the bankruptcy context, we see these going one company at a time. So INSYS had filed for bankruptcy before Purdue uh, under slightly different circumstances. Many of the companies that are implicated have also been involved in multi-district litigation, which at uh, a couple of years ago was supposed to be the way this all was going to get resolved. Uh, for those kind of cases that were being run out of uh, Ohio, Judge Dan Polster, he did not have the ability and the authority to order state attorneys general to, to do what he said or to stop them from pursuing their cases. So we do want to watch these cases are never a one-off, uh, it, it, whether about uh, opioids, about mass harm, or anything else in bankruptcy. Things that happen once happen, happen again, and are used as precedent. So the fact of Purdue being used 
in this more expansive fashion using bankruptcy this way, it, we do have to ask who might be coming next into the bankruptcy arena, who might be looking for some sort of finality that they're not necessarily getting out of these other processes. And that raises a lot of issues that bankruptcy is not necessarily equipped to resolve. And you touched on earlier about how pretty much every state in the union has sued Purdue Pharma, uh, including California. Um, and there's this idea now of, of turning Purdue Pharma into a, I think it's called a public trust benefit company or corporation. Effectively, does that mean that the citizens of California and of this country are going to own the company? Purdue Pharma has tried to be clear that that is not what they are proposing, that they don't propose public ownership, but that the company would be owned indirectly by certain uh, opioid abatement trusts, as they call it. Mm. And those would be those the company would be required by its charter to address the opioid crisis in terms of overdose reversal and addiction treatment, as well as growing the non-opioid business, as I uh, mentioned before. Uh, That has not been a satisfactory answer to many attorneys general. Uh, Right now, over half of the attorneys general, or about half, remain very concerned about this case. And they are under enormous pressure from the court to reach a deal uh, and to find a way to come to a settlement. Well, thank you so much to Patrick Radden Keefe and law professor Melissa Jacoby from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Patrick's new book is called Empire of Pain. You have been listening to Forum. I am Lily Jamali. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.